The year is 1969. I'm Dave. I'm Zach. And this is My Marvelous Year. My Marvelous Year, a comic book reading club where we cover all the essential Marvel comics from its origins to today. I'm Zach, the comic book newcomer, and along with Dave... <laughs> no, that doesn't make sense. I was going to just call you, like, Tiger because of Mary Jane Watson? Or, like, a, t- a tiger who struck the jackpot? <laughs> okay. <laughs> sure. And along with Dave, a tiger who struck the jackpot... <laughs> I mean, by hosting this podcast with me, that is my uh, favorite animal. So I'm game. We're going to cover all the essential comics. I already said that part. Ooh, this is this is off to a good start. Uh, we're covering the comics of 1969 today, and I gotta say, 66 peaked, 67 and 68 kind of went downhill a little for me. And I think this is pretty good. I was I was enjoying most of what we read this year. Um, Your back end, huh? And I like I really liked a lot of it. Like some of it was just. This is pretty solid, and some of it was great, so I'm excited to get into it. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, there's definitely some some pretty good stories here. We're going to start things off with a, a really strong Thor one that actually runs, um, kind of kicks off like a three-part story, three issues, and then there's actually two issues that I'll pick up that we'll cover in part two. Uh, but then, yeah, we got Good Amazing Spider-Man, we got Origins of a New Team, that's going to be a big deal, and Captain America kind of. is, is quite strong this year. Um, so... Yeah, it's an interesting year. I think, like, obviously, we're coming to the end of the 60s here in 1969. So it's we're going to do like a decade recap. But I think even as we're going through this, you know, you can feel I think you can start to feel the weight of what Marvel's built a little bit Mm -hmm. in that they're no longer in that fresh and new phase. um, And they're really just in the throes of like that kind of impending phase two of what do we do with these heroes and, and do we how do we keep these stories going forever, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. Because um, <laughs> yeah. if you look at Amazing Spider-Man, we're looking at issues 68 and 69 today. Like, that's a lot of storytelling in a row. And we're, we're in an era, 2019, where, I mean, can you think of a <laughs> can you think of a superhero run that has 68 or 69 continuous issues from the same creative team? Like, it's, it is extremely uncommon these days that you get something even approaching that. So it's, it's a... Sure different kind of storytelling um and it's interesting to think about in that regard like yeah i wonder how much long they, planning. they were blazing new new ground here like how much of this felt like a new type of comic book storytelling that they they understood that oh maybe this will just go for decades like yeah you you don't get that feeling for a while the way that they've been rushing through you know i don't know 15 issues before peter graduates high school the x-men graduating <laughs> x-men school like re-ensued getting married having a kid like all that happened pretty quick and right maybe they start starting to grapple with the idea of like oh no this could go forever so maybe maybe we got to pump the brakes on these you know huge changes that's a really good point is i do i do think there's something to yeah the speed of change in the earlier issues whereas now and there's a pretty famous you know line attributed to stan lee the illusion of change is what Mm. becomes important in comics 
And I think we're definitely in that phase where like now they're plotting for illusion of change, which is to say, tell a good story, make it seem like the status quo is going to change, but know that the toys are going back in the box because (laughs) these comics aren't going anywhere. I, I do think that confidence is, is like, definitely present so yeah let's get into it uh the first issue is thor number 160 and yeah zach you want to kick us off okay so we've got thor 160 stanley jack kirby i think vince coletta is inking here he's inking he's inking 161 so probably oh, okay it's not 160 as well okay well we'll get that so stanley jack kirby uh, this one starts out with that horrifying creature tana niles one of the colonizers showing up to earth and asking Thor for help with another galactic threat and whisking him off into the stars to, to deal with whatever they, they've got. The colonizers have some big galactic threat impending. We also have some scenes of the recorder who has been visiting Asgard in previous issues, <laughs> which I think is very funny. He's just this automaton wandering through the Hall of the Gods. And Odin is really taken with him. Odin really likes him. <laughs> and that's never shown more like when it's in contrast to how snippy he's being with Sif here. Yeah. Because the recorder's in his hall, and Sif is asking to go help Thor. She sees that Thor's in trouble. And Odin is like, No, my son faces a trial that he must face alone. And Sif is, says, But please, can I? And she's like, Sif, no. I said no. Odin has spoken. <laughs> anyway, robot, tell me more about your life. And like, can we do anything to help you? <laughs> and yeah. Odin is so temperamental. and uh... Yeah, he's really, really just, just fickle. Like, it feels like yeah. he's... Just, I mean, kind of characterized like, you know, uh, the Greek gods are. I don't know if that's the same for Norse gods, but Norse gods, but. I mean, at the risk of blasphemy, I would say even like Old Testament God, you know, like the perception of just like angry and fire and fury as opposed to. And well, maybe you know, a little unpredictable. Yeah, yeah, kind of. Yeah. So the recorder also knows something's up, that there's some big danger happening and he flies off. Sif is unable to go help. Um. Yeah, for no reason at all. She's banned from helping Thor. I don't, you know, you, you're reading more Thor in a row than me right now. Does mm-hmm. Sif, does she get a lot of good moments? Because here no. we are, we've been reading a lot of Thor. <laughs> Sif's been, you know, they kind of replace, quote unquote, replace Jane Foster with Sif. Sure, um, yeah. A while back now. Do we get any good Sif, like, throughout this time? She's just, I don't know, she's obsessed with him. She loves him. She'll do anything to protect him. That's her character. That's yeah, the entirety right. of her personality. I mean, she is a warrior, so at least she has that. She's a capable warrior as well, and she wants to fight by his side. But her entire personality is that she loves Thor and wants to protect her. And it's wrapped up in, like, he's her battle commander, but also her love. Yeah, no, I've, I've been there. Um, I, I do think, like, <laughs> Sif, <laughs> Sif becomes a really cool character that I yeah. think a lot of us can enjoy. Um, but, yeah, I just I don't... Well, that's too bad, because she's also just terrible in the movies as well. I mean, the movies, it's about the same, right? Like, she's a completely yeah, a good sec- point. forgotten secondary character who really doesn't have anything to do except be Thor's girlfriend. Right. I don't know if we talked about this, but the MCU, Sif and Warriors 3, one Oof, of uh, one of my top five missteps in the MCU. Sure, yeah. Like, one of the things they botched the absolute hardest, to the point mm-hmm. that in Ragnarok, they're just like, forget them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Forget. Well, I mean, like, Volstag especially. Out of the three of them, Volstag just gets, like, he's a big gruff guy. 
in the MCU yeah. instead of this like very funny characterization that he gets. Like, yeah, he's big and I mean, he's really funny, but that whole terrified but pretending to be brave. And, <coughs> please, Dave, I'm talking. <laughs> um, <laughs> you can yeah, that, all that gets swept under the rug. And it's frustrating. I, oh. and I actually didn't care that much about it before I had read these. And now that I'm reading these, I'm like, oh, man, that stinks. <laughs> right. In retrospect. Um, I mean, they're also just boring characters, even if you don't have expectations for what they are. Like, I I, I haven't watched that first Thor movie in a while, but I kind of suspect it's pretty dull. Uh, it's not one I'm eager to go back to, no. Yeah, I, ha- I mean, I hate the second one. I can say that for sure. I like I the, the second, second one more than most because it gets a reputation as the worst of the MCU. Um, yeah, but I, I, I actually like the Loki aspects of the Dark World a hmm. lot. Uh, the rest of it, I could I could leave, but I actually like the Loki bits in there. Um, yeah, anyway, I mean that's not to pull us too far into this, but like the comedic beats in that and both of those movies are so painful and so oh, broad sure. and like sitcommy. Uh, and then what's her name? Cat, the the girl from Two Broke Girls, and yeah. like Stellan Skarsgård and Natalie Portman, three like pretty good actors are all just like painfully bad in that movie like they're they're rough to watch Ugh. no they definitely didn't figure it out until ragnarok and then they really figured it out um but... <laughs> and, and swept all those i mean it kind of stinks that natalie portman came into the mcu and was just wasted like yeah they should just recast her and pretend that didn't happen and she gets to be the new thor like they should bring her in as the new thor because she could do that with a good director but it does seem like that would be first off a way more interesting story but also way more suited to her abilities um yeah, but yeah time will tell okay anyway so back to the issue thor and ton and isles are on their ship and a giant bear bursts through the wall with a like a strange praying mantis mask the design here is very strange thor fights him to knocks him out and uh they find out this guy is part of a race called the wanderers whose entire civilization was wiped out by galactus and we haven't seen this before um, we haven't actually seen the consequences of Galactus devouring planets, I don't think. That was, that was what I was going to highlight here, is we actually get to see what it looks like, like mm-hmm. what he does to worlds. And yeah. I actually quite like the concept of the Wanderers um, as this, you know, like civilization that has been displaced by Galactus. Yeah. It's a pretty good idea. And to think about the actual ramifications and consequences of, okay, we've developed a world devouring, um, you know, quote unquote villain. That, that here we'll see, like, they're definitely less interested in portraying him as a villain, you know, in the in the traditional sense, which is interesting. But, yeah, it's like there will be entire races that are now just, like, like soaring the spaceways trying to find a home. And that's a, that's a nice touch to add some consequences to what Galactus does. Yeah, and they're interesting because, you know, they're, they're spread out across all their different spaceships, just this big colony. They're kind of like the, the Quarians in Mass Effect, if you've ever played that. They just mm. have a huge fleet going through space of this ramshackle ragtag group of ships uh, and their entire civilization is just spread across a bunch of different ships. So yeah, they, they basically find out he's just angry because his planet got eaten, <laughs> but he's not bad. We get, we, we cut to Galactus and there's a really cool, I, I've actually, I've been kind of so-so on the art so far. Like it's kind of standard Jack Kirby fair, but um, <laughs> we get a cool one page shot of a, a huge portrait of Galactus's face yeah. and he's looking for worlds to devour, but he looks really glum. <laughs> <laughs> I really like that. Yeah, um, it's not the kind of villain pose you would expect. He's doing uh, a lot of like philosophy here as well. Yeah, pondering his his place in the universe and mm-hmm. and what it means for him. You know, and and he sort of defines himself as 
you know, he's just doing what he needs to to survive and that, that it has a role in the universe as opposed to like he is maliciously devouring worlds. I, I do think there's a piece he kind of skips over here, which is like, well, we can understand maybe that you need to devour the energy of worlds, but like, do you also need to um, like wreak havoc on all the sentient life? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. yeah, like there's that, definitely that, more un- uninhabited planets than inhabited planets. Yes, yeah, so they but, don't super get into that, but they're yeah. they're clearly painting what will be a Galactus refrain for a long time, which is like he just is, he just has to be. It's part of the universe, kind of thing. It's almost like yeah. um, I don't know. It's almost like a more pragmatic view of like death or mm-hmm. just like why is there why do bad things happen? Right? It's kind of like that question. He's just part of a cycle rather than a specific. It, it's kind of like the uh, Anton Chigurh in No Country for Old Men. Mm-hmm. Right? He's like personified as just he's just something that happens. He's not like a force who wants anything. He's not his own person. He's just there to randomly give life or death. And it's if you get tagged by him, it just happened. It's no one's fault. I feel like that bowl cut was someone's fault, but other than that, yeah. I, I hear what you're saying. <laughs> God, the the way that they made that very, very handsome man look like that. That man is like <laughs> strikingly handsome and to make him look like that is really impressive. Anyway, so the the thing is, Galactus sees, uh, interestingly, he's like, oh, this is a a big place, a a big space of space. What's the word I'm looking for? A big swath of space that's completely empty, but if Galactus said, man, there's so much space in space, (laughs) (laughs) I'd be really into that. But I I like the idea that he thinks, like, this is just a a big, vast, empty space. There's nothing here, but I wasn't here. Like, he's so self-centered that the only way that there would be nothing in this Mm. quadrant is because he came through and gobbled everything up. Yeah, right. But out of this nothingness, a big energy blast comes flying and hits him, and it turns out it's Ego the Living Planet from an earlier Thor. And this just kind of feels like, at one point, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby were like, you know what would be cool? Let's make Ego and Galactus fight. And... They're not totally wrong. Like they're it's not kinda wrong. cool. Like, yeah. like it's a good idea. I like it better when Thor shows up and fights Galactus. I thought that was actually pretty cool. I, I do like the idea as well of these cosmic entities meeting for the first time. Mm-hmm. I think is interesting. Um it you know, my in my sort of like cosmic pantheon, it these beings would like know of each other prior to it, anything involving Thor, because they've all been around for so long and there's sort of a a hierarchy and council. Yeah, they've been around for eternity, but they met for the first time in 1969. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's like that that level of awareness just hasn't been developed yet, so they can meet for the first time here. And sure, that's how it happened. In the in the ensuing fight between Galactus and Ego, Thor and the recorder's ship gets blasted apart, and they get like sent drifting into space. Can we talk about how Ego looks? Because I think I kind of hate it. Uh, sure. Has he changed here, or just like his I general design? Know. I didn't go back to check to see. If this is that different from before. I don't know if this is just expectations, but he just looks like a big blob with a face on it. Like, he doesn't mm-hmm. look like a planet that has a face, which even the idea that he would actually need a huge human face <laughs> on the side of the planet is kind of funny. And, I mean, it makes sense design-wise that it's not just, like, one big planet. Though it could yeah. be, like, a featureless planet. I think that would be cool and even bolder, I think. But, like, he doesn't look like a planet whose face... I think... uh Guardians of the Galaxy does that, where his face looks like it's built out of what, like, clouds and trees and mountains and rivers, like, kind of form his face facial features when you see uh-huh. that one 
shot from afar. Um, that's not the case here. It's just kind of strange. But then he also has all these weird, like, patchy, weird Jack Kirby-ness and things dangling off him. He kind of looks like a like the Scoby mother in a batch of kombucha. <laughs> I thought with a face on it. Do you know that? <laughs> like, just a big ball of blue snot. And I think he looks really gross and not cool at all, <laughs> despite how cool this idea is. Yeah, I, was I thoroughly disappointed with how eagle. That's looked. interesting. I yeah, he definitely doesn't have like the structures of a planet forming his face kind of mm-hmm. things that maybe more modern styles would have. Um, I as long as he has like a goatee, I have no complaints. Okay, <laughs> that that's the <laughs> that's the the line in the sand for you. Yep. Okay, so that that leads us into one sixty one. So Thor 161 is titled Shall a God Prevail? It's by Stan, Jack, Vince, and Sam Rosen. And Vin- um, Vince is doing a lot of the heavy lifting with the art here. I like the art better yeah. here because he does a lot of really cool work with the shading. And he he puts like entire different color palettes over it, which is really ni- nice. Like he doesn't do just everything as bright colors. He does a lot of interesting shading here. Yeah, no, it's a good looking issue. Um, the, the Wanderers pick up Thor and the Recorder as they are floating in space. Uh, then we kind of cut to Galactus versus Ego. They are just continuing fighting. So there's a a nice long battle between the two as they square off and you see that they are (laughs) relatively, uh, equally, you know, suited to battle. It's a little Dragon Ball Z-ish where it's just like two guys blasting each other with power rays. Yeah, totally. Back and forth. Like one of my favorite bits in this issue and and just kind of cutting through it because it really is a lot of action is Thor just, he just like, needlessly inserts himself into the fight you know mm-hmm. he just kind of decides mm-hmm. like i better get in this <laughs> and there's not really even any attempt at uh explanation for this um but he joins the fray he chucks mjolnir at galactus this and is it, a cool moment though i yeah. like that where just out of nowhere thor's hammer comes flying and wings yeah galactus in the chest and galactus notes that he actually feels pain so he's mm-hmm. you know yeah. this, this mere mortal as he describes him um, has actually caused him pain, which is pretty atypical. So they like he's he's interfering, and weirdly, Thor is kind of like I think because Ego was on the ropes, you know, he's kind of on Ego's side here, um, kind of fending off Galactus. And Galactus is definitely painted as like he's the villain because that's the portrayal the Wanderers have given as well. You know, this is mm-hmm. the guy who destroyed their planet. Um, so Thor and the Wanderers they use this gun that the Wanderers have built on their ship. Uh, Thor kind of infuses it with the power of Mjolnir and his lightning, and um, really it's like hammer powered, <laughs> which is awesome. Mm-hmm. And they blast Galactus, and essentially like they pretty much beat Galactus with this gun. And yeah. as a result, Ego's like, "Hey, thanks, guys. Do you want to use my planet, uh, Wanderers, as your new homeworld?" So he he offers himself up as home to to the Wanderers. Yeah, that's a weird, interesting idea that I feel like I would be really uncomfortable with if I was a Wanderer. <laughs> Is that the safest, best home planet? I mean, they've been looking for a while. He's friendly and maybe owes them one. Uh, but at the same time, he's ego and living. He's clearly gets in a lot of fights. <laughs> and you don't want to be on his back when that happens. He can change his mind is a big one. Yeah, and also he's just like, you're living in his flesh. You know, it's just like, oh, he's real sweaty today. Gross. Just all the like biological stuff happening there really wigs me out. Sure, sure. Um, um, the, the yeah, only, that takes the, us. Oh, go ahead. The only other thing from this issue that I wanted to point out is the Thor and Recorder get picked up by the Wanderers at the beginning and they're knocked mm. unconscious. And 
when they are brought to... It is funny the way that Stanley thinks he needs to explain everything, right? Like, the Wanderers can't just speak English, and no one would bat an eye. He has to give a rationalization for why they speak the same language as Thor. Yeah. Well, we've seen him called on that in the letters. Yeah, I know, but it's like... I mean, people who are calling him on that are being dweebs. Like, just get get on board, right? Like, it's, <laughs> it's a Norse god flying through space, fighting a planet. Like, yeah, it, it, it's not that interesting to be like, they speak different languages. Uh, you know, I do. It, I know you're joking, but like, that is one of the things I love about Stan Lee is he never goes to the letter page and says, get on board, you dweebs. Like, he just never does well, that. Sometimes he is pretty dismissive of like, you but know. jokingly so, and like in a way that you can't be mad yeah, at. Yeah, no, he's, he's just—he's not rude about it. Yeah, you never get the sense that he's mad. And it, the dude, and like everyone in the Marvel bullpen, they must have just been like, "Have you seen this letter? Have you seen this guy?" You know, like they mm-hmm. must have been seeing yeah, some of these. <laughs> but, I mean, that one who's like, "Give Peter Parker a mom. I need him to have a mom." Right? Like, <laughs> and they somehow could respond to that. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Kindly. Anyway, the, what I liked was when they wake up. The Wanderer says. You may speak freely, for we have studied your tongue. <laughs> I just wanted to cut back to five minutes ago to an unconscious Thor and one of these bears just like pulling his tongue out of his mouth, looking at it really closely with a, a looking glass. That would be a nice touch, yeah. Uh, All right, okay. so that takes us into Thor 162. and Gal- uh, This is titled Galactus Aborning. And it's more like Galactus Aborning, am I right? Oh, burn. I- yeah, this one's not... um. This one's not great, although it is kind of interesting. I, I actually didn't hate it. I just I just had that joke. <laughs> you just wanted to sick burn on Galactus. I mean, the thing is, the fight with Galactus is over. So Thor goes back to the colonizers. He gets awarded, like, a medal, like, at the end of Star Wars from the colonizers. And Jack Kirby is way into single-page portraits. Have you noticed this all of a sudden? Like, in yeah. these few issues, we get one big page of Galactus. In this issue, we get a huge portrait of um, the, the leader of the colonizers, and which is fine, I guess, like <laughs> if I got to choose who I wanted a, a portrait of, it wouldn't be that big headed weirdo. But there's also a huge portrait of Odin, which is pretty cool later. Yeah, I'm into the big Odin splashes because he's usually wearing some incredible headgear. Yeah. Yeah. So this is kind of just Thor going on him like a, uh, a victory tour. <laughs> he goes, goes to Rigel. He goes back to Asgard where he's warned that Thor needs to see him and Galactus's threat is not over. And Odin somehow conjures the image of Galactus's origins. They look back in time and they see how Galactus was formed. C- kind of. It's basically Yeah, Odin's Odin's been making a documentary of Galactus <laughs> and then yeah. he's real excited to show it off. <laughs> <laughs> do you uh do you guys mind uh, checking out my new YouTube doc? Yeah. It's, uh, I think it's going to get a lot of clicks. Yeah, he, please like, please like and subscribe. <laughs> he um yeah, so he shows way back when at some point there was a big space war happening, and there was a big egg that looks like a, a huge cube, right? Is that the incubator? Yeah, yeah, the incubator egg for Galactus, and, and that's it, right? That's like the, all the origin we get for Galactus is that there was a big ship that's his incubator floating through space, yeah, and this uh, this invading army. I don't even know if we get the context for who this army is or what no. they're after. They're just like an invading force. Base ignores this incubating Galactus, and he emerges saying, My incubation is complete. <laughs> Which is a not very threatening thing to say. Like, yeah. <laughs> your first word should be a little cooler. I do wish baby, more babies said that. When they I know, I was thinking the, the same thing. <laughs> yeah. 
uh, thundering Galactus voices. Yeah, so that's that's kind of it. We just get to see that Galactus was incubated at some point. Yeah, we don't this, get much this more origin will get fleshed out more. Um, I, yeah, I it think feels of it very. Cage is a Fantastic Four. Uh, this isn't super satisfying. <laughs> no, it doesn't <laughs> it has... give you anything except that something started him. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah, think the yeah, good yeah. things about this issue are one, they're thinking about the origins of Galactus, which is interesting. Um, I really love Thor as like kind of becoming the de facto cosmic book, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, I would have thought Fantastic Four, you know, has definitely done a fair amount, but really Thor is the one that's like really tackling these issues yeah. and dealing yeah, with like sure. Galactus in space and his role in, in the universe. Um, the other good things from Thor 162. Uh, Heimdale has a giant H on his shield. I need him to bring that shield back. <laughs> that would be excellent. I do like that Jack Kirby touch of people putting their first initial onto their their gear at some point. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like if Kirby, if there were more shots of Kirby wearing belts that just had a big JK like belt loop, <laughs> you know, gold embroidered, like that would be amazing. Yeah. Um, and then uh, Volstag is riding a sickly donkey. And I think uh, anytime Volstag's riding a sickly donkey, I'm in. It's a it's a comical visual, and I love it. And I want more Volstag all the time. Yeah, yeah. It's very funny that he's like clearly three times the size of the donkey he's riding. So that's Thor for this this stretch. Again, we're going to come back to some Thor and Galactus stuff uh, in part two as as that series develops. But that's going to take us into Amazing Spider Man number sixty eight and number sixty nine. Mm-hmm. So number 68 is called Crisis on Campus, and this is Stan Lee, John Romita, storyboards, Jim Mooney, uh, actually inking and arting, and Sam Rosen on letters. And uh, basically it opens with Kingpin is after an old clay tablet, and he asks one of his, his lackeys, his henchies. <laughs> like, yeah, that's uh, what you think of when you think Kingpin, his lust for old stone tablets. He loves stone tablets, and he asks one of them, they're like... It's so weirdly motivated. Yeah, well, it is. And he's like, why do I need this? And they're like, dude, it is so old. And he's like, say no more. <laughs> no, it really is. It's <laughs> almost literally thing. that. They, I feel like that that inclination is real tough to deal with Kingpin. Like you just, his his henchmen need to walk around being like, oh, everybody has one of those. No, no. Then he's like, hey, what? look at that jewelry that woman has. You think that's mm-hmm. rare? No, 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 no. That that's that Everyone has one of those because otherwise right. he's just demanding. Yeah, yeah. Every shiny thing. I Are you going to talk about the fight here? Uh, go for it. Oh, yeah, I was. <laughs> okay, <laughs> yes. go for it. Yeah, yeah, go. So, so after he's set his sights on this clay tablet, um, one of his one of his consultants suggests to him that you know maybe Spider Man will get in the way, <laughs> and just hearing Spider Man's name enrages Kingpin. He tears off his shirt. He yep. turns to the room of muscle bound men. He's talking to some scientist or like historian, getting a presentation in what looks like a lab or something, mm-hmm. and. Then- and then he just turns. He's in the same room. Yeah. And the camera pulls back to show that there's a bunch of, like, hunk boys lifting weights, like, in the other corner of the room. <laughs> it's a very arrested development camera um, yeah. turn oh, where yeah, all of a sudden like... somebody you didn't think was there is there. But it's, like, five guys lifting weights. Right. <laughs> <laughs> just over, over uh, overhearing this presentation about ancient stone tablets. Yeah. So Kingpin, now shirtless and enraged, says to these guys fight me and give me a workout. <laughs> and they're like, uh, sure thing, boss. And he whoops their butts. And I got to say, there's a time tested. And he fires them all for not beating him. He fires them for being weak competition. There's a time tested tradition of Kingpin fighting 
guys shirtless just for a workout mm-hmm. and i love it every it's time very it's funny. so funny yeah. it's such a good kingpin detail um i don't know why he doesn't i it's like he whoops on these guys every time but then is surprised that he whoops on them it's like mm-hmm. dude, you, you know like you gotta <laughs> you know you think he'd have like established more i you know what i want is i want the miniseries or the backstory of the guys who are like yeah i fight the kingpin for a living <laughs> <laughs> he's just like, covered he fires- in bruises He's like, there's really only 12 of us. We just go six at a time and we fight him. He fires mm-hmm. us. Another six come in. Right. And then we come back. He just forgot he fires us. He doesn't right. remember who I am. Yeah. But I fought him dozens of times and he's fired me dozens of times. <laughs> <laughs> there's also the idea of Kingpin that he's constantly traveling with a, a retinue of these beefy boys. Like, <laughs> like yeah. everywhere he goes, he needs like six men lifting weights behind him just right. in case someone mentions Spider-Man and he needs to rip his shirt off and work out some aggression. So yeah. just in, in a board meeting, <laughs> there's some guys, you know, doing bench presses and squats behind him at dinner with his wife. <laughs> there's just some muscular men out on the sidewalk. Yeah. Just in case he needs to fight like that. That idea is very good. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was definitely a miss in, a, in Netflix Daredevil not to have that in every scene. But yeah, so it's a very strong Kingpin opening. I We've talked about it, but I really like Silver Age. The weirdness of Silver Age Kingpin compared to kind of what we know him as in a more serious business um, schemer. Yeah, he's very he's very different, but I yeah, I'm, I'm into it too, even though I kind of want him to get a little bit more grounded instead of just like... Right. Because right now it doesn't make too much sense. Like It's it's goofy. Um, yeah, it's a little in goofy. In a way that but it, it, it's just kind fun. of like, I don't know, it's it's an odd curiosity. Um, but this is definitely how he, how he starts. So we cut now to Peter Parker gets introduced to a brewing campus protest, uh, Mm -hmm. about low rent housing more or less. And he is introduced to the, um, to the protest, the student protest by Robbie Robertson, or excuse me, Randy Robertson, who, Mm -hmm. as it turns out, is the son of city editor, Robbie Robertson over at the daily bugle. So they kind of have a connection because they know um, Robbie. Low-income dorm housing is such an interesting thing for them to pick. It is. <laughs> as being it a hot-button topic Yeah, this issue. It feels like they just weren't comfortable enough jumping into something more heated. Yeah, it's kind of safe, Yeah, right? It's kind of safe by comparison. Because there's, like, there's sort of like civil rights unrest mixed into it, almost sure. by default. Like, the two yeah. protest leaders that are talking to Peter in this are black men, um, black students. And there will be some like, I don't know, like kind of racial slang or language used. Oh, it gets real racial in a way that mm-hmm. I was surprised. Like, suddenly yeah. you're just writing the word whitey a lot <laughs> in a way that I was like, oh, that's. Yeah, right. So they're not um, they're not totally ignoring it, but it's they're mm-hmm. focusing instead on low rent housing as opposed to like diversity or um, like actual civil rights protests, you know. But I but I think it's like they're trying to capture the the spirit of late 60s student protests and mm-hmm. like for Spider-Man mag that is like fairly new, like kind of tackling social issues. And again, like that's not, I don't think comics throughout the 60s are, you know, we've talked about this with Stan, like as a writer, they aren't really tackling social issues and that kind of like bringing the real world into the comics thing. Mm-hmm. Um, this is one of the earlier instances of that. And it's kind of interesting how they do it. This is as close as it's gotten. Yeah. Cause we've had, Back in the Steve Ditko days, there was some student protesting in one scene, and that was definitely more like the protesters said to Peter, oh, come join us, like, come join our protest and I'll join yours. And Peter's like, what do I have to protest? And they're like, figure it out. Like, and it was clearly Steve Ditko just being salty about like, 
Oh, they're just there to protest. They're who's know, lampooning like it? Yeah, student students are just whiny, and their protests are pointless. And there was nothing going on here. This is a little more nuanced, even though I feel like ultimately he's taking he's trying to do a little bit of like both sides of the argument. Yeah, um, but he still kind of comes down on one side a little bit that the protesters might be overreacting a little bit or like they're being a little too heated in the end. Like that's that that maybe their methods are a little too intense, which is kind of a which is kind of a wild angle for a guy who puts on a costume and beats up criminals in his spare time to take. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> sure. Well, OK, so what happens with the protesters is that they start talking to Peter Parker about they want to turn this exhibition hall into into housing for visiting alumni. And the students are saying, no, it should be low income housing for dorms for low income students versus for these alumni who have money to put themselves up in the city when they're here. And Peter Parker is like, oh, yeah, that makes sense to me. Like, right. I, I think that makes sense. But I think he's like, I don't have time to join the protest right now, but like I'm on board, something like that. And then later when he walks by, they get kind of pushy with him. Like, Peter, like you need to join up with us. And he gets very mad. And he's like, he kind of just gets in an altercation with the, the head protester. I can't remember his name, but the guy that kind of seems like he's leading it. And this and, is where the, the notable racial tension kicks in because this, yeah. this guy refers to Pete as whitey. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then Peter kind of takes the like anti-student protesters stance just by like it, not because he's against what they're doing, but because he's like, I don't like being pushed. <laughs> yeah. No, because he walks away thinking like, well, I'm on their side, but I don't like being forced into doing anything, which is <laughs> actually the most. So we, we talk, Steve Dicko had that objectivist philosophy bent and everything. But I didn't see it actually creep into the comics all that much explicitly. I mean, there is something, someone was talking about this in the Slack where like, it is just baked into Peter Parker in general, right? Personal responsibility is the the word of the day for objectivists, right? Yeah. End all and be all of how society should function is just personal responsibility. And that is Peter Parker is personal responsibility. But besides that, like, you don't see that play out in the issue by issue that often. But that idea, I actually think, kind of came into here, right? Like, Peter Parker's on board with their message, but he just doesn't like being told what to do by a group, (laughs) right? Like, he wants to make his own decisions. And when he's being like, join us, you know, you're with us or against us, he doesn't doesn't like that. And he kind of box at that. Right, right. He kind of wants to do his own thing. Um, Come to to a decision on his own terms. And uh, yeah, it is, it's an interesting debate, I guess, to be having, definitely for the time. But basically, so... There's a few other items before we get to the to the heart of the protest. Um, one thing to note here, Peter and Gwen's relationship is getting super serial. They are maybe falling in love. And mm-hmm. uh, we can tell that, you know, things are getting hot and steamy. It's kind of nice to see, like, Pete in a healthy, like, romantic relationship mm-hmm. yeah. and get past all the the early days, you know, snobbery and cold shoulder and, and all they that They had stuff. a lot of that last year. Like, I read every issue from 68 because we didn't touch anything. And him and Gwen kind of had a nice arc in that. I read that they had this big split and then it was this kind of like, oh, will they ever make up? And then they kind of eventually fell back into each other's arms. And it felt very earned. And, like, this kind of feels like, oh, okay, well, they get to be happy for a while. Yeah, right. And it's not a huge part of the issue, but I I will just confirm for everyone, Aunt May is still a million years old. Uh, That has (laughs) not changed. Um, And she's not doing great. Uh, I think, you know, we're, so we're talking about the protest kicking off. We get um one of the other kind of like, 
I don't know, kind of surprising bits for me was Randy gets told, um, Randy Robertson, you know, basically his dad gets called an Uncle Tom for working with the Daily Bugle. Yeah, this is like, this is a real run, like a running thread here that the the black protesters kind of, they, they keep talking about how like he works for the man and he's part of the establishment. And I was like, is mm-hmm. it a newspaper? Like, well, is that really part of, is that the man? Like, I mean, kind of in some regards, but like. Well, and this is an ongoing debate throughout the rest of the comic. Um, and Robbie and Randy actually have like some pretty interesting conversations, you know, father to son about mm-hmm. this, where Randy yeah. kind of, you know, he's feeling that pressure. So he calls his dad on it. Like, you know, you're, you're working with the man and this and that. And, and Robbie explains like his side of things, which is, you know, isn't that the dream that we would be able to do a job and just and, as well or better than anyone yeah, else? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, there's, there's a whole discussion there that is like interesting, honestly. And, and they um, don't, I, I feel like it doesn't come down firmly on like clearly one is right and one is wrong, right? Like, it leaves it, it leaves it maybe as nuanced as it should be. Um, yeah. which is, so, both, you know, there's affecting change from the inside versus, yeah. you know, protesting and disrupting from the outside because of lack of rights, which I think both are totally valid tactics to take. Yeah. And the one thing I thought of when they, you know, they refer to Robbie this way is like the daily bugle as a very conservative newspaper, mm-hmm. um, because we, you know, like Jay Jonah today, certainly like if you played like Spider-Man PS4, he's, mm-hmm. he's very right wing. You know, we would think of is him. Is he? Oh, okay, I didn't, I didn't know yeah, that. I yeah, I mean, it makes sense, right? Like, He's he a stand-in for, for that. I don't know that... When I think about that, I'm like, oh, man, he's kind of a Trump figure. He kind of, like, that spoils it for me, and I need to, like, push that aside. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that... I, that's a tough one. I I would need to think about that some. I mean, actually, probably the comp um, that they do in Spider-Man PS4, and please cut this, is uh, Alex Jones, actually. Oh, okay, yeah, sure. Um, But, like... I like Jonah, <laughs> so it's weird. Yeah, no, I know that's the thing. Is like I need I need to just divorce that from any kind of comparison to real person, real world media personalities, because otherwise yeah. JJJ gets a little ruined for me, and I love him. Yeah, um, but I guess where I was going with that is the the Daily Beagle may have that perception now, maybe for modern readers. I don't know mm-hmm. late sixties that this was clearly yeah, maybe, defined. Maybe there's a context I'm not getting because I I think I was just surprised by like he's not a cop. Right, <laughs> I think it's more just if, establishment. If, it's just if Robbie establishment, was a, yeah. Yeah, if Robbie was a cop, maybe I would understand that. But like, he works for a newspaper, and he's city editor, I think. And it's just like yeah. him being, you know, I don't know, working for the man seemed like, oh, that's that's strange. Like, well, it kind of has the it kind of has the impression of like almost any job would fall into this category. Well, if you're working for like a white power structure, I think is the the idea. But I just was surprised yeah, that they right. viewed the media that way. But, you know, I mean, also probably the media wasn't that friendly towards civil rights movements. And that, that probably is the context we're, we're missing is that, yeah, you know, similar to today, protests don't get covered about the context of or the, the content of what they're protesting. They get covered on the one in a thousand people who decide to make some trouble and, you know, get shown in the worst light possible and whatever, all, all the ways that the media <laughs> fails progressive sure. movements. So that, sure. I'm sure that was just as bad back then as it is now, if not considerably worse. So that, that probably is the context we're, you know, we're lacking. Yeah. No, I'd, I'd be curious to hear um, from the listeners and, and maybe some of the supporters. Yeah, know, sure. Like, if someone has a better historical idea of this. Yeah, yeah. How, how you interpret these conversations. But yeah, so it, it gives, and I think the fact that we're talking about this long, like, 
there's more fodder for social issues here than typically we get in Spider-Man. But what it does set up is more typical Spider-Man, which is as this protest is heating up and everybody's eyes are on it, the Kingpin, of course, realizes this is the perfect time to bust into the exhibition hall to get the old tablet. And that's the same exhibition hall that the protesters are protesting over, and they, like, actually charge the exhibition hall. So there's a protest happening inside the building where the Kingpin is also actively stealing this tablet. And got... I, I don't know. There was a um, there was this weird moment earlier where Robbie Robertson was like looking out his window of of his office, and he said something like something along the lines of he was worried that something bad was going to happen. He's worried about his son at knowing he's at the school. Yeah, and then all these protesters charge into the exhibition hall later, right? And there's cops there protecting yeah. the stone tablet, and I was sure that his son oh. was going to get shot by a cop. Like, I was positive that's the direction that this was going to take. And I was so worried yeah. <laughs> that that's what was going to happen. I was like, gen- because of that, it felt like he had set up this um, foreshadowing that that was going to happen. Like, Robbie was worried about something happening. And then all these protesters charge, and it seems like it's getting heated. And I, I really thought that's where this was going. That That is definitely probably my 2019 filter. I mean, it's also not. It's yeah, no, totally. Filter. <laughs> um, no, it, it, um, it stopped short of getting that heated. Or making that much of a statement, yeah. Um, but and yeah. then it kind of it kind of then yeah. transitions into a more traditional Spider-Man versus Kingpin fight as Kingpin gets for this tablet. Yeah, they fight yeah. for a while. Uh, basically, it ends with Big Willie style escapes with the tablet, and uh, that sets up Amazing Spider-Man number sixty-nine in nineteen sixty-nine. Oh, and uh, can I just say I'm pretty proud of us? Why is that? <laughs> I didn't. I didn't think. I, I didn't think anything of that. All these mentions of of a certain number, and both of us have resisted making any jokes. This is a very serious podcast, Zach. <laughs> or even muttering nice, which was... <laughs> I feel like every time I said that, you would I'd just hear from you. Nice. I made a decision, and I've stuck to it. And I'm proud of myself. Yeah, both of us. have. Yeah, we didn't even need to talk about it. So mm-hmm. I don't even know what we're <laughs> talking like, about. I like the idea that coming into this, you were like... I'm going to need to have a talk with Dave. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know what? Like, if there is any joke that is just the most worn out joke for podcast, specifically for boys on a podcast goofing around, yeah. it is yeah. just joking about the sex number. <laughs> so, like, that, I mean, that that is like the McElroy's bread and butter is like just 42069 making that joke. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, but here on this uh, podcast, you'll get none of that. Yeah, this is all going in the in the outtakes because um, my mother listens to this and she doesn't need to know what that number is. Uh, Nor does she. God, my mother actually does <laughs> listen sure. to this and uh, and like has commented on my swearing, which is very no <laughs> very kidding. Funny. Yeah, especially like that we bleep all the swearing, and she was like, "Well, I really don't think you need to use that language <laughs> like to get your point across." <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah, um, yeah. So that leads into Amazing Spider-Man sixty-nine. Nice. And the- <laughs> <laughs> damn it, damn it. We just talked about this. Sorry, sorry. Um, that leads us into Amazing Spider-Man sixty-nine. And all the protesters have been arrested by the police for breaking into the exhibition hall. Robbie Robertson is at the police station trying to get them uh, freed. And he's, this is where he has that conversation with his son that we talked about. Something interesting that happens here is Gwen Stacy goes into the police station because her dad, I don't know if we've ever talked about this, her dad's a police captain. No, we have not. 
Yeah, he, he's been around a lot if you've been reading Spider-Man, like, through the 60s, or the late 60s. What's his name? Captain... Captain Stacy. Captain Stacy. Mm-hmm. Captain George Stacy, I want to say. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Anyway, he's a police captain. On her way in, the protesters are outside of the police station, like, protesting to get these students released. And they start ragging on Gwen Stacy because Peter Parker looked like a coward and ran off from the protest to, to become Spider-Man to fight. But, you know, like, and Gwen, St- <laughs> Gwen Stacy is like, oh, well, he didn't need to join your crummy protest anyway. And they're like, well, he's a coward. He doesn't stand up for anything. He's on the establishment side. And she slaps one of the protesters and then stomps inside. And then she also does defend Peter like he's, you know, twice the man you'll ever be kind of thing, which is except interesting. Except she slaps the guy and then stomps inside. And you see her thought bubble of like, what if they're right? Peter is a coward. So there is this kind of like, it's it's similar to how Peter reacted, right? Like he's just reacting emotionally and it's making him lash out against the protest. Right. Even though ultimately he's for the same thing. It kind of reminds me of like these complete monsters who are like somewhat right wing and they're just like people are like, well, that's racist and xenophobic and homophobic. And they're like, well, I got tired of being called a Nazi. So I kind of just turned into a Nazi. You know, like the left drove me to it. You see all Mm. these think pieces all the time of like, you know what? The left called me racist and a Nazi for so long. That I finally just embraced it. Thanks, liberals. Like, yeah, <laughs> that attitude. And there is like a touch of that, which is kind of funny. Like, you know, I completely agree with what you're doing, but you're being really pushy about it. So I'm kind of on the other side now, which is like the epitome of their privilege. <laughs> there's a there's a pretty yeah there's a pretty earnest think piece that you could do about the fact here that both Pete and Gwyn are the only students to kind of like quote-unquote, stick up for the establishment versus mm-hmm. the student protesters um, and what that said, it, it, and for the reasons you're saying, not because they disagree, but because they're annoyed <laughs> by right, the yeah. methods and the attitudes of of the actual protesters. Um, yeah, I mean, I I see it, and it's it's I don't think it's an accident. I mean, I don't think it's an accident that they're like, well, the heroes of our story are pro-establishment because we are not far removed from, um, from of course, all of these characters being very much in support of Law and & Order and, and the 50s mm-hmm. comics of literally titled Crime Does Not Pay. Like, we're not that <laughs> far away. You yeah. Know? It feels like they're trying to walk some tightrope. Like, they're not totally pro-establishment. They're just, it feels like when it comes to their, their personal ego, it is more important to them that they're not, like, being pushed around or disrespected than the issue at hand, right? Which again, like that is kind of their privilege that this, this doesn't actually matter to them. So when it comes to like, Oh, well, it's really inconvenient for me to be questioned. So I'm just going to like throw my hands up about the whole thing. So I mean, it, we're reading into it a little bit, I think like, Oh, that, a lot, that, a lot of it. But yeah, I, I think, but that, I think that, that's, that is a deeper level than this wants to talk about it. But that yeah, is the but I think the too. fact that it raises those questions is like, I think it's to its credit that it opens up that kind of conversation even. Yeah. But they're like, it, it maybe feels like it is trying to take a somewhat neutral stance, but just in the way that it frames things, ends up taking somewhat somewhat of a stance. Um, because later, just I'll cut to it right now, there is this whole thing about how the student protests, like, the dean of the college actually is for low-income housing. And when he meets with the protesters, he's like, oh, sorry, kids, my hands were tied. Like, I, it's this weird thing where he's like, I actually am on your side, but I just didn't say it because... 
I had some old-fashioned idea that students should be seen and not heard. And it's like the same exact idea, right? Like, yeah, I actually am on your side, but I was frustrated with your protesting, so I didn't want to, I don't know, cede to your demands. And then, like... Well, I do think that's a very modern issue of, like, yeah, I understand the protesters are mad about this thing, but why do they have to... Why do they have to have a protest or why can't they just go through the regular <laughs> channels? Literally you know like, mean? like Yeah, which is very funny that like people don't get that's literally the idea of a protest is to make you yeah. uncomfortable. But right? I feel like, like you hear that argument a fair amount uh, today, yeah, even. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, totally. Right. I mean but it, again, that it wouldn't work if it didn't like raise your hackles. I think that's the the idea. You know, the Black Panthers standing in front of City Hall with a couple rifles, right? Like, and people are like, well, why do they have to be so militant? It's like, well, that's exactly why to <laughs> to, to make you uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, right. Anyway, the, we're expanding this way out of the scope of this comic. That, that's kind of everything that happens with the protest. What happens with Spider Man is that he tracks down the stone tablet. He beats up some random street thugs and finds out where the kingpin is. He goes to the kingpin, and they just have a big old fist fight. Um, mm-hmm. It's okay. It's pretty good. I, I like the... There's a moment where Kingpin knocks Spider-Man out, and then while he's, like, gloating over his unconscious body, Spider-Man jumps up and punches him, and he's like, I'm playing possum. And he knocks the Kingpin out, who then does the exact same thing to him. I really... <laughs> <laughs> that is very funny. He's like, I can do it, too. And, like, he falls for the same exact trick that he just pulled, which is... A, it's a good moment. Yeah. Um, I, my favorite thing about this fight is... Prior to the fight, Kingpin hides the tablet in his vault, which has no locks. He just is so confident that he's the only person strong enough to open this vault that no one <laughs> will like, ever get in. It's like Superman's Fortress of Solitude with the giant key. Yeah, totally. <laughs> except totally. that it's just, except that it's just a big wheel. And and you live in a world of Avengers and Fantastic Four, and you know full well there are other people out there who might be strong enough to open this thing, or just two people working together at the same time. <laughs> Sure, sure, yeah, yeah. I mean, you but keep, just you keep the boldness. a lot of muscle men around, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. So Spider Man is in fact able to open this vault, and that's how he yeah. gets the tablet because Kingpin put it in an unlocked room, <laughs> and that's where the police rush in to arrest the Kingpin for stealing this. And this is like also that thing where the Kingpin is a criminal out in the open. Like he charged in to steal the tablet instead of more modern Kingpin would never like actually do that because he's trying to be legitimate on the outside well and that's the one thing we don't get here is we don't get at all a sense of like wilson fisk uh public persona businessman mm-hmm, right. doing things right like it's just yeah. not a part of his character yet yeah um, no. because he's publicly a criminal and really not very secretive about it yeah and he convinces the police as spider-man is like running off with the tablet that spider-man was in on it that spider-man was his partner and so the spider, the Spider Man, the police start shooting at Spider Man as he webs off with the tablet, like he's trying to help and like give it back to them, and they start firing at him. And this is where Spider Man, once he's escaped, is well, if they're going to view me as a menace, maybe I'll be the menace they always feared. Yeah, which is like, all right, come on. I mean, I, I'm going to read the next issue to find out what that means, but like, no way. <laughs> like, I, I don't buy it for a second. Yeah, <laughs> like. Yeah, the, the idea. But I, I did read the next one, and it's pretty good. So the next issue is next issue is pretty fun. I'm gonna I'm probably gonna throw it into extra issues because I think it's worth checking out in conjunction with this one. Yeah, no, Spidey stays good as always. But on this podcast, we're gonna keep going on to Marvel Superheroes number eighteen, which might seem like an odd one to include, but this is the introduction of the original Guardians of the Galaxy. 
which is um, can you can you tell me what else was Marvel superheroes this series doing? Do you know? Uh, they introduced Captain Marvel a few issues back, so it's kind of a launching pad. Yeah, okay, that's what I was for thinking. new ideas. Yeah, you'll get like um, later in time there will be like some Captain Britain stuff that comes out of this. Um, so yeah, it's kind of an interesting magazine. <laughs> I actually saw that. that that on Marvel uh, Marvel Unlimited. There's very few issues of this, and it's like Marvel superheroes number eighteen. And then Marvel of Superheroes number 331 is like the next oh, issue in Marvel Unlimited with Captain yeah. Britain. They like, they skip a couple hundred issues because. Yeah, yeah. They're just putting in the essentials of this. Right. Um, but yeah, no, this one's written by Arnold Drake, uh, art by Gene Colan. We have Mickey DeMio inks and Herb Cooper on letters. Gene Colan's art here is just rough. Like, I didn't, I thought you were not going to like this. It I, feels like he, uh, like his writing desk or his, his like, the desk that he was using had a slant on it that he didn't notice, like mm. <laughs> because everything just feels weirdly elongated, and there's so many strange like well faces the, and bodies. So the first the first character is Charlie Twenty Seven, <laughs> yeah, right. and he's from Jupiter. His face mm-hmm. is intentionally elongated. Yes, yes, that's true. Right, he's got like a big old football shaped head because he's from Jupiter. First, I was like, why does this look so weird? And then realized eventually, like, oh, I guess he's an yeah, alien. Yeah, which is like a fun sci-fi idea, right? He was born and raised on a planet with incredibly high gravity, so that he's he's very strong and uh, but also flat. <laughs> yeah, and I will, I do want to give some credit here to uh, the writer here is Arnold Drake, who we have not seen much of in Marvel. Arnold Drake's actually the uh, co-creator of DC's Doom Patrol. And oh, he wrote the Silver Age Doom Patrol for quite a long time. Uh, it's a really fascinating, strange Silver Age book. I think one of the better DC items from this era, definitely, that I have read. Hmm. Uh, and Drake, definitely. It's interesting to see him writing for Marvel because yeah. from what I have read historically, he definitely held some resentment towards Stan Lee that Stan stole some of the Doom Patrol the concepts X-Men. for yeah. X-Men. Yeah. Yeah. So I think of them as being sort of, I don't know, I don't know, not enemies, but definitely sort of like you kind of stole from me. But then Drake, I guess, taking work where he could get it here is doing um, a Marvel superheroes gig. And like, I mean, it's pretty it's probably, wild. This guy created the Guardians of the Galaxy and the Doom Patrol, at least. To me. Yeah. I mean, it's probably just Stanley offered him some money. Yeah. No, totally. Yeah. It's like yeah, you're a freelancer. You will. You'll take the work. Um, but yeah, so this is the original Guardians of the Galaxy. If you know the MCU version, don't expect to really see too much familiarity here, maybe a very little bit. Um, and then this this Guardians unit will come into play in future Guardians stories, which is why we include it. Like, this is mm-hmm. not entirely a relic of the past. This does actually get tied into even the most famous modern Guardians run um, pulls back from this original unit. And I, I don't think we need to talk about the story because it's like so cookie cutter it's just there are aliens the the badoon which are the least interesting aliens they just look like the creature from the black lagoon we talked about them i think last episode yeah they're just um, a conquering alien race and we kind of basically this so this is the 30th century i believe mm-hmm. it's the year yeah, 3007 like yeah. and uh the badoon have essentially conquered seems like vast majority of our solar system you mm-hmm. know yeah. um, there are small pockets of resistance and that's what the Guardians are coming together to form is pockets of resistance to this Badoon empire. We get introduced to the original lineup of Charlie 27. He's a Jovian. He's from Jupiter. Um, he escapes to Pluto where he finds the Pluvian Martin X, who is like all made of crystal, big shiny gems. Um, and then you cut to the Badoon presence on Earth where we're introduced to Major Vance Astro, 
who think Captain America in space, and you've yeah, totally got his story. A thousand years instead of 20 years, right? Like, he was in... Actually, his story is kind of funny, because that I, I really... This is my favorite part of it. They cut back to a thousand years ago, where they were shooting him off into... I don't know what planet they were firing him off to. It was more just like... I just read it as, like, space exploration in general. Yeah, but they were like, you won't survive the trip, like... You know, it's too long of a trip, so we're going to put you asleep for 1,000 years. And they had all kinds of fun. Like, he's got a bunch of fun sci-fi ideas, even if they don't congeal into a story. Yeah. Like, we're going to replace all of your blood with this, like, preservation fluid. And then in a 1,000 years, we'll pump it all back, which is like, I don't want to look in that tank where his blood has just been sitting for a 1,000 years. It's pretty disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> um, and But there is this idea where he's like, I gotta, I'm going to make one last phone call to my gal back home. And he's like, forget about me, gal. I'm going to space for a thousand years. You'll be dead. And, uh, and that's what happens is that he gets shut off into space. And then there's that very funny thing where they're like, they open up his tank and everyone's like, yeah, 200 years after we shot you off into space, we figured out how to travel faster than the speed of light. So like, it was kind of all for nothing. Sorry. Yeah. Everyone, you know, has been dead for, uh, 900 years. And, uh, we just, we kind of let you float for another 800 years because we couldn't catch your ship. <laughs> and he kind of laughs at the absurdity of it and like, doesn't quite go mad, but you can tell it's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So that, that character is somewhat interesting. It's an interesting concept, even if they don't do anything with it here. I like Vance Astro and he's captured with Yandu, who would be the guardian uh, adjacent character that I think people would recognize. And he displays his cool whistling powers and uh, Mohawk. And those are basically the four original guardians that escape together and they sing a fun uh, folksy protest song about uh, overcoming the Badoon at the end of yeah. the issue. Yeah, that was that was weird. The yeah, Yandu's cool, but they like. I feel like if I didn't actually know that's what he was doing, it would, they like they didn't sell it with the art. <laughs> that it's written. It, it's not shown. It's like written, well. but it, yeah, it's kind of confusing that he's like whizzing around an arrow by whistling. You know, mm-hmm. like, I mean that's a, a strange thing to portray, but they don't portray it at all with the art. Yeah. So that's the foundation of your guardians here in 1969. Um, they'll come back, you know, more or less like once a decade until they really get going. So they're not yeah. going to be a big part from here, um, but it's important to know these characters because they do show up. So that leads us into Incredible Hulk number 113. 115. 115. So the thing is like, we're, we're let's just treat this 115, 116, 117 as one issue because it honestly, this could have been one issue easy. <laughs> No problem. This yeah. could have been all squished into one issue, and it would have been maybe better. But spread over three issues, it just became a real drag for me. And I, I don't actually hate what's happening with the Hulk right now. Like the little melodrama playing out. Like it's the same exact melodrama I feel like we've been seeing for five years now. You know, the military doesn't like him. Betty Ross does like him, and he needs to fight villains while also keeping the military at bay. And that's that's kind of it. Oh, and also leaders back from the dead. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, we didn't know he died. This is the first time we're seeing the leader, I think, in my Marvelous Year anyway. I talked about him in Extra Issues. So. Yeah, and they, they do a little recap of, like, his first appearance where he seemingly died. He's yeah. back. Um, I do like... So the leader is... He is kind of the Hulk's arch nemesis, and he had gamma radiation exposed, but instead of making him strong and dumb, it made him extremely smart with a big head. And I like- uh, he's a genius. I feel like uh, if you had to bet, you would probably say like, yeah, I bet Zach hates this guy. No, I love how he looks. I think he looks really fun. 
I like the leader a lot, actually. I think um, he just like yeah. he looks intentionally ridiculous. I think to a point, right? Like he looks like a big weird headed weakling. Yeah. And I think kind of like Modok. I think they're trying to use that on purpose to something. Well, and I, jo- um, I enjoy the simplicity of he's the reverse Hulk. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. Hulk gets dumber. That's a good idea. He gets smarter. It's simple, but it works. Yeah. There, there was a funny that during his actual origin. It was like he get blasted with gamma radiation, and he didn't actually turn green or big-headed, but he was just in his hospital bed recovering, and he's like, books! I must have more books! And he's just, like, devouring books, like, the <laughs> until all of a sudden his brain grew. Three sizes too large. No. What's the Grinch? Whatever. I think three sizes too small is the Grinch's heart, is what you're thinking yeah, of. Yeah, Maybe. I went the wrong way. The, the military, uh, General Ross has the Hulk imprisoned. And, oh, hey, uh, do they know who the Hulk is at this point? Because they kind of talk about it like... So Betty that... talks about it openly, like yeah. everyone knows it's Bruce Banner. Um, right. So it, it seems like substantially less now. of a secret than I would have expected here. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, they have him kind of locked up. The leader shows up and is like, hey, let me work with you, military, and, you know, we'll capture the Hulk for good. Uh, as, as this is happening, Hulk pretty easily breaks out of the military's confinements. But then right. leader... Yeah has a grand plan to trap the Hulk in a cave. <laughs> in a cave or cage? Uh, it's a... Well, isn't it a cave that turns into a cage? It is. No, it's like... Um, you know those little poppers? Those, those little toys where it's like a, a, a little half disc and you turn it inside out, put it on the ground, and it pops uh-huh. up? Uh-huh. It's just kind of one of those that he places yeah. over the Hulk. And it's just like... It's just some plastic goo... That sticks to the ground, and the Hulk is captured in like a pimple on the ground, <laughs> and it's it's something, I guess. The, yeah. the thing is that like it's made out of a plastic that's very resilient, so when the Hulk punches it, it just snaps back and hits the Hulk back with the same force he put into it. Yeah, that, that's kind of it. it out. Like, Leader seems to have done it successfully. The military's kind of like, mm, should we really trust this guy? Well, but the, General the, Ross the is like, well, it works. Really, so. I, the leader comes up with a uh, airtight excuse for why they can't arrest him which is like you declared me dead and technically i was so you can't prosecute a dead man and they're like damn it he's got got he's got us there (laughs) yeah all right i guess you're uh you're free to do whatever you want on our military base um yeah so they kind of they strike a devil's bargain with him and he's i mean the next two issues are the hulk escapes the leader has a robot that's built out of the same Plastic stuff, I guess. It's a super humanoid. Yeah, a super humanoid made out of plastithene, I call it. And uh, there's there's more fighting and there's more hulking and I I don't know. Like yeah, I you just described get... uh, four decades of Hulk comics. <laughs> I think uh, yeah. The piece I do like in Incredible Hulk number 116 is the leader is revealing his plot to start World War Three, um, mm-hmm. but he's doing so in an out loud monologue to no one. And Betty, Betty overhears him. <laughs> I, there's one page of the leader monologuing to himself out loud, and it's 15 different speech bubbles of yeah. him just talking. And it's he literally doesn't say anything except, with this power, I'll take over the world. But like 15 different configurations of that sentiment. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, oh my God. It's I mean, this this is the worst of like golden age writing, not even like silver age. I mean, it, it's just that like so, really boring... It's interesting you say that because in Hulk 117, one thing that really stood out to me is this is a Stanley written comic, 
There are eight straight panels of action with no words whatsoever. And I don't know that it's definitely the first time that Stan's done this, but it's the first time that I've seen it in a comic that he's attributed a writer where there's actually not writing um, for a period of action. It was It's a progression that I think we saw with Starenko doing for that Nick Fury, uh, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. issue. Mm-hmm. But yeah. it's the first time I've seen it really anywhere else. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, this is Stan Lee writing these? Uh, all, yeah. All, all three. Yeah. It, I mean, it's just him, like, do, at his worst. No, Hulk will not be trapped in cage again. Yes, Hulk will leap right at you. Quickly, strike him down. That kind of just, everything is narrated way too much. Like, every movement the Hulk is saying, like, and now Hulk will smash as he smashes. And now Hulk leaps through the air. Like, he's just, it, it's all that stuff that we... Yeah, it's of... a little repetitive. I mean, I think these three issues, they aren't they aren't anything stellar. I think it's important to know who the leader is, because he's a good Hulk villain. Yeah, um, yeah he's okay. We haven't read a ton of Incredible Hulk and. In, Frankly, we're not going to for a little while. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this gives you a taste of what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. It's not It's not bad to check in and realize that you're not missing out on anything. Now we're moving into like some of the coolest stuff going on in Marvel yeah, right this now, is, I think. This might be my favorite issue of the year. Um, yeah. Oh, definitely for sure for me. Like, I, and I mean, that's tough because Spider-Man, I think it's definitely more like there's definitely more going on in Spider-Man. But the art here is just so ahead of its time. Yeah. Well, well yeah. let's get into it. So. What one thirteen is what we're checking out for Captain America. If uh, if you guys have time, go check out like I think one eleven and one twelve at the lead up to this one, and they're both really good too. Like the uh, one eleven. Okay, so one thirteen starts out with Captain America has been killed, and they're fishing his mask out of the the river, and it's got bullet holes in it. Yeah, the issue is called the strange death of Captain America. Yeah, so what one eleven? You actually get to see what happened and that played out and that's a really good issue and then 112 is this interesting like everyone is finding out that captain america died and you get a flashback to his entire origin so you get to see silver age captain america you get to see him fighting with bucky the death of bucky you get to see him frozen in a iceberg and namor finding him and all that stuff and like him joining up and with the avengers and everything that's been happening silver age so 112 is kind of like a catch-up issue well, also like a remembrance of Cap. So th- both of those are worth checking out. Yeah. And then 113, they actually follow up on, you know, seemingly a world without Captain America. Um, Stanley writing, Jim Starenko on art, uh, Palmer on inks, and Artie Semek on letters. It opens with Madame Hydra, who we have not seen before, celebrating the death of Captain America. And uh, Madame Hydra, I think that you get like a little like, subtle sneaky origin for her as well Mm -hmm. um she's the new leader of hydra post what she describes as the death of baron von strucker um she describes some horrible scarring but it's kind of like hard to tell where it even is you know she doesn't have (laughs) the whole uh viola from the incredibles where she keeps like half her face hidden under her her hair oh yeah yeah she's got her hair down over bangs it down over her face um but yes you know she's this kind of ruthless leader of hydra and obviously like she's super pumped that they took out cap you cut to Avengers and Nick Fury holding a funeral, and we hold like an entire funeral for mm-hmm. Captain America. Yeah. Um, it's kind of somber. Nick Fury gives a eulogy. Like it's really, it's interesting how much this issue commits to, like, yeah, Cap's dead, and you know, everyone's I, reacting to it. I the thing is, like, I would totally be on board with that, except that the last issue, the one um, one twelve leading into this. The, the last panel said, like, next issue, not all is as it seems. <laughs> Immediately, like, they just, they can't help but undercut any kind of, uh, 
you know, tension, even if you kind of know, like, clearly they're not killing off Captain America, like, even if you kind of really know that, they can still play along, and they just, sometimes they just can't help themselves. Yeah, right. So during the funeral, uh, Hydra gas attacks everyone. They by, by putting some... a, a card in the casket? It's strange. I don't know what that Yeah, was. there was some capsule of poisonous sleepy gas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. They capture Nick Fury and all the Avengers. And uh, then you get Bucky Barnes. Oh, wait, no. Rick Jones wearing the Bucky costume, which is just <laughs> one Cap- of the Captain weirdest. Captain America makes that slip all the time, too. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's one of the weirdest relics from this era is Rick thinking, yeah, it's a, it's a cool idea to wear this Bucky costume all the time. That's not <laughs> weird at all. And, and Captain America just is like, you know what? It's just, can you just play along like... I'm just going to call you Bucky because, like, I'm going to slip up anyway. So, like, <laughs> let's just call you Bucky. All right. Yeah. I mean, like, don't think about it too much. It doesn't mean anything. But, like, okay, Bucky. Yeah. All right, Bucky. And Rick's like, like yeah, yeah, sure. Like, he's just such an <laughs> eager beaver to please to please yeah. Cap. Oh, and uh, there's, there's one other detail I wanted to point out. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows that Captain America is Steve Rogers at this point. His public identity has been, like, outed because... And one of the details is when they're pulling his mask out of the water full of bullet holes, they also pull out a Steve Rogers mask. <laughs> and they're like, oh, turns out Captain America wasn't Steve Rogers after all. He was, who knows? We'll never find out who he was. Right. right. No, that's detail. a good point is he's, they pull out this Steve Rogers mask. So then everyone's like, oh, we thought we knew his identity, but actually he was wearing a mask. So who was he? We don't know mm-hmm. anymore. Um, so yeah, there's uh, which kind of gives a whole away bunch. the game of what's going on here. Yes, totally. Yeah, uh, but um, so basically, Rick Jones is like the only, I don't know, like Avenger friendly person sort of left. He, he was too and, upset to go to the the funeral, right? And he's kind of wandering around looking. And this is where we get one of the coolest well pl- splashes should, in all of you Marvel. Should, you should say how the uh, Hydra carried off all the Avengers and carted them out of the funeral in caskets. Which uh-huh. is like a very, very uh, evocative image of like all these caskets lined up with each of the Avengers sleeping inside of it. And that's what Rick Jones just sees like <laughs> a dozen caskets being carted off. Right. Brought, so he follows them. The cemetery. And he's he's about to get attacked by Hydra. And then we get this amazing scene mm-hmm. of Captain America comes flying in on a motorcycle in this amazing Storenko double-plate oh, splash. So I, cool. Everything about it is just my favorite. And the, all the caption is written on the side of a tombstone where uh, Rick Jones has, like, tracked them to as Cap mm-hmm. comes in to yeah. save Rick from these Hydra agents. Storenko loves these moments of people busting in on motorcycles. That happened. We with saw a good Nick Fury, Fury one. Yeah. yeah, I think Cap keeps his shirt on, if I'm not mistaken. But that's other true. than he that, does. it's yeah. perfect. But you know what the thing is like? Yeah, that's really cool that the text is on the side of that tombstone. Think how cool it would be if that text was worth reading. <laughs> it's like <laughs> I read about half of it, and I was just like, all right, because we get it. Okay, that immediately stylistically, leads. it's awesome. I don't know if uh, it reads awesome. Yeah. Two pages later, we get again, like it's just. We're being spoiled with amazing splash pages. This picture of a pile of Hydra members and Captain America lifting one up like over his head. One of these Hydra guys while a a big pile of them are underneath him like beaten and firing guns. And it's this amazing splash page. And again, there's a wall of text up above him and you start to read it. And it's like, what is Captain America? A symbol? A man? Who knows? But to the Hydra members, and it just goes on and on like that. Just the most like empty pontification. Jim Stranko's not a great writer, but it's not terrible. Well, this you is Lee. Kinda... This is Stanley oh, this... writing. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Well, sorry, Stranko. I just assumed because it was like 
on and on. And that's kind of what Stranko did before. Yeah, no, for sure. I This issue makes me jealous or envious of like the alternate reality that got uh, 20 issues of Leon Stranko oh, on cap God. because it, well, that'd be so amazing. So let, let's, let's finish out this issue. Like Captain America comes in, he faked his own death. He put it, he, he threw a dummy off a building into the river and Hydra shot it on its way down because he wanted to reset his identity. Basically he wanted to, you know, shed the, uh, he, him being out as Steve Rogers was putting other people in danger too much. So he wanted to, you know, go back, go back to having a secret identity. And this is where like, we get that illusion of change idea really yeah, kicking into high yeah. gear. You know, well, I wonder it's if like, that was really the case or if they just, they switched out to cap being out in the open and they were like, well, this isn't as fun. And they just maybe. decided to switch back. Yeah, maybe, but there's a lot of assumption that like, you know, that's just how it's done. Mm-hmm. You know, is everybody has a secret yeah. identity as opposed to like, what if he's the one who doesn't and then play right, with that right. idea? Yeah. Yeah. So that's this issue and it's great. Like, um, but 90% because of the art. Because otherwise, it's like oh. a pretty standard cap story. But this art I would say is like ninety nine percent. I can't overstate how good it is. Like, there's a all right. Here's all the stuff Stranko does. He's using like optical art, which is really cool. He does mm-hmm. stuff like he's clearly someone who looked at you know the, the like black and white pictures that create optical illusions and like mess with your your vision in interesting ways because he does all those spiraling black and white things all the time. Mm-hmm. He uses color. To unify a unify a page in a way that no one else has ever done. I think I I can't think of a time where in any other. I think there was that one fight between the Molten Man and Spider Man that was like black and gold, and that was it. Mm. But like not like this. Like he has a page of Madame Hydra, and the entire page is just green. It's like greens, whites, and blacks, and that's yep. it. In different shades of green, with one sharp punctuation of red in the middle of it, and it's amazing. And it looks straight out of like Sandman in the the late eighties, like. Mm. He's, I feel like he's 20 years ahead of his time with this artwork. Yep. And it infuriates me because I was looking it up. Like, Stan Lee just couldn't get along with him and kept trying to, like, hack up his art and uh, and over-edit him. And he quit or he was fired, one or the other. Like, it's kind of unknown. Right. And this is the last issue that he did for Captain America. And it's like, he did such... I don't know. He did, like, six issues that we read, maybe. And I'm like... I would be fine with him replacing Jack Kirby at this point. Like, Kirby who? I want Stranko for everything because this, this stuff is so good. It just makes everything so much more readable. Yeah, no, there's there's definitely, like... I don't want him writing. Some missed opportunities there. Well, it would just with him on art. Like, if you, if yeah. you thought about, like, okay, Kirby wants to move on, cool. Like, what if we got Stranko on Fantastic Four? Oh, like, my God. How, how amazing could that have been, you know? Um, and and, and I, he's the only person breaking out of Kirby's... The, the Kirby school of design. Yeah, we're actually going to talk about some Neil Adams work on X-Men in part mm-hmm. two of this, which I think okay. does it, it. We start to see that that new wave of like talent, I think, to a degree, which will be interesting. Um, yeah. And I'm curious to hear your takes on the art in that because I think it's pretty fascinating. Uh, but I mean, like guys like Starenko and Adams, like they are good artists in Marvel in the 70s. Don't get me wrong. Of course there are. Mm-hmm. Um, but guys doing exactly this, like I, the next one that really stands out to me is like Jim Starlin. I think, mm-hmm. um, okay. but that's going to take till, I don't know, the first few years of the seventies. Um, I don't think anybody ever quite hits that Storanko level of like, I don't know, clear superiority or just like, he, he stands out so much. He's doing something with comic books that no one else is doing, right? Like everyone else is stuck in the panel by panel format, the really, really, 
you know, like every pant, we have a uniform look to every panel. Like we use generally the same coloring and the same shading for each panel. And he's just like, no, this page is green and the layout is all over the place. And like, here's a bunch of panels, but then here's a big image emerging out of these panels. That's panel lists. And he does this over and over again, where like, he's just so much creativity. And it's actually like pretty cohesive here as a pair compared to when we were talking about those Nick Fury comics, we were like, these are, this is great art, but there's just so many ideas hopping all over the place with him writing. I think like if he had been teamed with a writer that he could really like work with, I'm sure he could have done like an all time great run because yeah, I mean, and he does stuff like using a lack of color for good effect. Like there's, um, there's panels during Captain America's funeral where he just drains all the color out and it's just black and white to the effect of showing the emotion of what people are feeling. Like, shots of Sharon Carter crying where it's just her black and white face, which like people, I don't know. No one did that like at this time. And he was just, it really reminds me of vertigo work in the eighties in a big way, like Sandman, Constantine, Swamp Thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's hugely influential. It's extremely cool. I think when you hear artists, creators today talk about this work in such reverential tones, like this is why. Um, yeah, and I looked him and up. It's and a shame he, he kind of cut. He kind of like bypassed the the normal progression of an mm-hmm. artist, which would have been him working with a writer on a run for a bit, and instead he just sort of hops straight to like doing it all himself. And I actually think right, that's kind of yeah. a bummer um, because his like his work like as a collaborator could have been a lot more interesting. I think. Yeah, yeah. I read that like he wanted to do a really H.P. Lovecraft inspired story. Yeah. And Stan Lee was not having it, and it just led to a feud, and they just, he split, he quit, or was fired, and and it doesn't look like he did that much comic work, period, afterwards. He, he had a career after this, like, he did concept art for Raiders of the Lost Ark, I guess, and, mm-hmm. like, he went on to movies and did, like, artwork for movies and stuff, but, like, yeah, he didn't have a big comics career after this. He even did, um, we're gonna see the, the logo for the X-Men change to, the, like, the really iconic big block letters, you know, yeah. like that last forever. Like I think through the nineties and once you see them, you'll be like, Oh yeah, that's the X-Men logo. He designed that for the X-Men at this time. Yeah. And like X-Men 58, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I've never been madder at Stanley that he couldn't get along with this guy. <laughs> <laughs> Though no. to be fair, it could have be Steranko couldn't get along with him, but I'm just assuming it was Stanley. <laughs> well, Steranko's a pretty big, pretty big brash personality. Yeah. Um, He's, th- as, he's still alive. He's us. like one of the few guys from this era who's still still around. Yeah, so that's going to do it for us. Uh, for this part of the issue, we're going to pick things back up with um, Captain America, a less stylish story, but a pretty important and interesting one in Cap 115 through 119 when we get into part two. Yeah. Oh, and check out uh, 114 if you if you got a chance. Like If you're liking this Don't and you it. just want to... Oh, I like that. I read that guys. one. Too. It's not yeah. on my list. It must not Are be worth it. Are you saying that because like, it's outside... Oh, okay. Oh, this is this is just Dave trying to control <laughs> you, not saying it's bad. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, I mean, it's, it's not great, but it does, like, it's what transitions Captain from being, like, coming back into civilian life. And there's some interesting stuff happening there where he's uh, he's got his secret identity back, but <laughs> he can't get it. He can't rent an apartment because he doesn't have a license. <laughs> um, all right, cool. So, yeah, this has been another episode of My Marvelous Year. Uh, we want to say <laughs> smooth transition, right? That's that's like a real purred happily. 
This is this the has podcast been. that you are listening to now called My Marvelous Year, and it is now over. Listener support for My Marvelous Year is brought to you by listeners Our like you. Our backers at patreon.com. Yeah. So, yeah, thanks for everybody at patreon.com. You can go over to patreon.com slash mymarvelousyear to figure out ways to support uh, the, the podcast and the work we're doing. Well, you don't have to figure it out. We have it all laid out for you. No, you got to crack it. If you can't crack it, you can't get in. Okay, it, it, this is a bad joke. I want this Sorry. to be as difficult as possible, Zach. Actually, speaking of which, I need you to redact a lot of the uh, tier benefits information so that people are very confused <laughs> and don't totally know what's available. Just question marks behind what you get, and then, <laughs> and then I just shuffle. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we'll put our poll. Uh, you can find My Marvelous Year, of course, on Instagram, Twitter, uh, Facebook, just search for my Marvel this year. And then of course, uh, you know, we do have our Slack channel for the $5 tier patrons and, uh, we're having some great conversation. It's a ton of fun yeah, to see the always. community talking about episodes, yeah. talking about comics. And I've been finding some really cool music recommendations from the community recently. This thing is the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> yeah. It's a really, really wide, especially music. It's a huge range of taste in the Slack that happens. Um, yeah. 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 Pretty cool. If you just want to hear me complain about Sekiro and how hard it is, <laughs> the Slack channel is there for that. That's right. I refuse to allow you to do that on this podcast. Um, if you want to find more of my writing, you can do so at comicbookherald.com. Uh, you can, of course, also go to mymarvelousyear.com for a page on Comic Book Herald that will give you all of the reading lists for every year of My Marvelous Year as we go from 1961 to present day. Uh, you can also find those reading lists on Patreon. We're going to send it out via an email, the Comic Book Herald email newsletter, and in the show notes as well so you know what to read for next episode. And we recommend you do so with the Marvel subscription service, Marvel Unlimited. For the rest of the month, uh, if you let someone know about the show, we're going to enter you in a drawing for the Fantastic Four facsimile edition number one. Uh, we really appreciate the help spreading the word about the show. And... Uh, just let us know, however, email, tweet, Slack, and we'll put you in for the drawing. If you get someone to listen to the show, have them send us a message too, and we'll uh, put them and you in for another drawing. Thanks. Good. Hey, this is Zach, just cutting in solo for a minute. Dave and I forgot to actually choose the poll for 1969, and I'm realizing this now, the day before the episode comes out. So we talked and came up with a good poll, I think, um, but I'm just going to record it by myself here. We want to, for the variant cover for 1969, we're actually kind of doing a, a whole recap of the 60s. So we're talking, so this poll is going to be the best story of the 1960s. Uh, we have qu quite a few options here. We're aware that we're probably not going to hit everyone's favorite, though I think we have a pretty wide selection here. Um... As part of listener feedback for our 1960s recap variant cover, if you want to write in and just let us know what your favorite story is, if it's not here on the list, or any other thing kind of summing up your feelings about the 60s, we're, we're going to kind of have this big, broad overview look at the entire decade that we covered. So um, the nine stories that we chose for the poll are in order. The Origin of Doctor Doom in Fantastic Four Annual Number 2. Where Walks the Juggernaut? X-Men, 12 and 13. The Search for Eternity, Strange Tales, 130 to 141. If This Be My Destiny, The Amazing Spider-Man, 31 through 33. The Coming of Galactus, Fantastic Four, 48 through 50. This Man, This Monster, Fantastic Four, 51. How Green Was My Goblin, 
The Amazing Spider-Man 39 through 40, Spider-Man No More, Spider-Man number 50, and The Strange Death of Captain America, which is Captain America 111 and 113. Dave wrote up his suggestions for this poll. Uh, he also included the Stiltman trilogy, as he calls it, but Dave can go to hell. So if you want to vote in this year's poll, head over to patreon.com, and the poll is open to patrons of any level. Thanks. And our opening music is by Disasterpiece, P-A-C-E. Is that? I said that out loud, and then I was like, yeah. no, it is correct. Shut up. Um, I think you said P-A-C-E. I said P-E. P-E-A-C-E. Listen P-A-C-E. back to the tape. All right. Disaster Pace is going to be getting a lot of hits, and then I don't know why. <laughs> God, yeah, Disaster Paces. <laughs> it's it's 45 beats per minute, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it's terrible running music. Um, disaster Pace, P-E-A-C-E, is our opening music, and you can find his music on Spotify, Bandcamp, wherever. Great stuff. Check it out. This has been My Marvelous Year, 1969. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next year. See you next year. 